part of the genius of humankind, the very bedrock of civilization, is our ability to have ideas and to share them. Hey, have you noticed? Hey, what if? Which is one of the reasons why it is so irritating on how hard it is to actually do this. You know, you say, hey, what if? And they go, hey, whatever. You don't get why they don't get it. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Now, Tamsin Webster is all about idea transmission. She's honed the skill by helping hundreds of TEDx speakers take their loosey-goosey, abstract, and confusing idea and making it a compelling, irresistible 17 minutes. And she's done similar things for marketing teams and brands around the world. She's got a new book, Find Your Red Thread. And in that, by reading that, you come to understand that she is, well, you could call her an idea whisperer. But what do I even mean by that? What is an idea whisperer? Yeah, I think the best description of what I am and what I do is that I am an English to English translator. Um, I have uh, found, found myself throughout my life uh, sitting between worlds. And as a result, I seem to have picked up the ability to understand how what one group is saying so I can translate it for another. Translating English to English, well, that sounds nonsensical until you remember that wonderful quote from George Bernard Shaw, the problem with communication is the illusion it's taken place. Now, I'm intrigued by this idea that Tamsin brought up about being between worlds. Tamsin got her first taste for that early on in life, in high school. She was very much part of the art crowd, but her school required her to take sports. So Tamsin found a way to do just that that didn't involve, you know, sweating a lot. So I ended up being the manager of the varsity boys baseball team. And it was a blast. I mean, I learned how to score a baseball game, which I'm still very proud of my skill, uh, you know, my skill and ability to do like, you know, old paper, paper scoring of a game. Um, but it really helped me, I think, see for the first time that these two groups, which on the surface seemed like radically different, really just had a lot in common. And there were just things that I could understand from one group that helped me fit better into this other group and vice versa. Bridging arts and sports, well, those are two very different pursuits with very different languages. But in these divided times, it's clear that a bridge-building campaign is required between just us normal humans as never before. So I asked Tamsin, why is it so hard for the rest of us to hear and understand other people? Well, because we spend so much time talking to ourselves. Um, and I mean that seriously. And then, of course, there is that fun fact that not everybody has that inner voice, which for those of us with an inner voice, really like mind-blowing thing. <laughs> uh, I know. Um, but but whether or not you actively talk to yourself, <laughs> silently Which I do, definitely, yeah. yeah. I mean, your brain has shortcuts for mm. making the world make sense. And they are so innate at this point. They're so second nature. They are so 
just part of, there's so much part of our operating system that right. it's nearly impossible for us, just like a computer can't read it, so or can't see its own code, really, um, for us to really understand that we're doing it. And so what happens is we end up, you know, we end up talking like a local to a visitor from a foreign country. And right. those are two, you know, we may be talking about the same thing, but the way that we're talking about it is a way that suits us, but doesn't suit the people that we're talking to. And so that's really the big flip that yeah. that is required is that ability to, you know, and it goes beyond empathy. It's not just to feel what somebody else is feeling, but to the extent possible, think like someone else is thinking and, right. and to take that perspective when you're trying to explain things. You know, one of the ways you introduce yourself, I've seen this in your bio, is part strategist, part storyteller. Mm. Um, what is the relationship of story to strategy or maybe vice versa, strategy mm. to story? So I would have had a very different answer to this just even a couple of weeks ago, but recently I saw an article in uh, the MIT Sloan Management Review mm -hmm. uh, that was talking about how strategy is an argument. And that how any good business strategy actually is an argument. It's a case for something. Oh, and it nice. has, oh, it's just like, oh my God, I love this. <laughs> um, I was like, these are my people. <laughs> Thankfully, I'm very near MIT. So I really want to like, you know, use my, I do have some context there. I'm like, can I, I just, I just want to go talk to you about this. Um, but well, that. I, as an aside, I, I write for that uh, periodical so I can make introductions. Oh, if you oh my to. gosh, please. Because <laughs> I, that article, I was like, this is the missing link. Um, yeah. Because when we make sense of the world, whether that's in business or elsewhere, mm. we do it as a story. And a lot of times right. when people hear story, they think like once upon a time story, you know, rising action, falling action, hero's journey, whatever. And, but that's actually not, I mean, that's true, but the kinds of stories our brain builds are really just cause and effect stories. They're, they're instant explanations oh, for why things right. work the way that they do. Um, and in essence, those, you know, to, to quote a different area of the world, you know, it's, it, you know, a story is an argument. And so right. when is, you know, a strategy is an argument and a story is an argument. And so to me, a strategy is a story. If you can, if you can, if you can actually right. understand what was the story that you told yourself about why this idea, this particular action mm. is the right one. Well, then you have the strategy, you have the argument for that, that strategy, and you have a way of explaining that strategy to other people that will intuitively make sense to them because everyone has this story operating system. So yeah. the, the degree to which you can put your ideas into that code is the degree to which you can quickly upload your ideas essentially into other people's story processing brains. So do you have to, to succeed, Tamsin? Because I'm thinking about the argument, and I love this bridge between, the, well, if a story is a version of an argument and strategy is a version of an argument, you get to see how these uh, are bedmates. Yeah. Um, and then if you're somebody like me, you're like, yeah, I'm conflict-averse. Like, I don't like arguments. <laughs> but Yes, I get that. But I mean, think of an argument like a case. That's how I okay. think of it. It's not that right. you're arguing like, like, let's have a conflict about it. It's it is it is the argument and the logical and the logical definition of it. It is it this is this is your case for right. why this particular idea is important or this idea particular idea or strategy or whatever it might be um, is the right one. And 
that's the thing. I mean, I think when <laughs> you are explaining your idea, I think so often we end up offering explanations for people when what we really need to be offering are arguments. You know, again, not conflict. I'm going to fight you on this. That's actually yeah. counter to my whole approach. Um, yeah. But it's in order to really convince somebody of something. Um, in fact, they have to convince themselves. You will not convince them. And so right. they have to hear a case that makes sense to them. Mm. And that case, the case, you know, the cases that make the most sense are the stories we tell ourselves. Those are the most powerful right. arguments of all. And so that's really what this is all about. I really just got fascinated by that from, you know, really started yeah. back in my days as a Weight Watchers leader. Like, how is it that people make these decisions? How, what stories do they tell? How can you rewrite those stories? Mm. Yeah. And not from a, you know, once upon a time, it was a dark and stormy night kind of thing. It's, right. it's the, it's the case, the, it's that, that, that explanation yeah, yeah. that we give ourselves, that argument that we make to ourselves, the justification mm. for why it is that we do what we do the way that we do it. There's a a fear that I have around this, Tamsin, which is if I'm busy trying to put my case, my argument into the language that they understand, so it becomes a story that they, makes sense to them and they can tell themselves. Yeah. How much of myself do I lose in that? And, you know, entangled in that is, well, how much of my authenticity am I trading for that? How much of my uniqueness am I losing? in this need to build a bridge over the understanding bridge over to that other person. How do you, how do you balance that tension? So I, I, I hear that. And my initial reaction is that it isn't just the language that we're putting into the frame of the audience, the people that you're talking to, right. it's the concepts. Um, and so there's a couple of things. One is that where I believe that argument starts, which is in something that your audience wants, but doesn't yet have, right. uh, to me, that's a shared goal. Like it, if, right. if you don't also believe that your product, service, idea, whatever it might be, <laughs> right. satisfies that want that somebody else has, well then Why are we what are you doing it for? Anyway? Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> No yeah. conversation to have. Got so it. that's the first piece where that very first place where it starts is a shared goal. I mean, I, I right. talk about it in the language of it's the audience's goal um, because that's the way that I found over time just mm. puts the thumb slightly more on the scale in favor of somebody actually putting it in the audience's yeah, yeah, language. Yeah. Um, but it is a shared goal. I mean, you have to believe that your, that your idea actually is an answer to that question. Nice. Um, yeah. the, the second piece is that, you know, as you know from having read the book, that you know, in the way of that goal, then we present a problem that, that yes. that's standing in the way. It's in fact the real problem that has to be solved before we can solve the problem of how to get the goal. And that's again a place where it is, while it it is first anchored in the way that your audience sees the world, you are immediately contrasting it with your way of seeing the world. And again, right. it has to be a contrast that you agree with. It's basically you're trying to find a shared perspective, a shared set of lenses through which you can talk about your idea. Can you give us, just to, to ground this for people who, who are, are yeah. catching up on this whole like structure, can you give us some examples of what, just the demonstrations of what those are, like or what those could look like or sound like? Sure. I'll use an example from... Um, 
I'll use an example from one of my TEDx Cambridge speakers, since those are those are those are fresh and eventually in the public domain. So I know I yes. can use those safely. Um, so one of the folks that I'm working with right now, actually, a woman I was working with just this morning, um, uh, Becca Schwartzlose is her name. Um, she talks about brain mapping and right. this question that you know, this goal question, this question that she her research answers is. You know, in lay language, why is it so hard for us as humans to think about certain kinds of things like right. budgeting and long-term planning and compound interest or some of the examples right. that she gives? Yeah. Like She's like, why is that so hard? Um, and kind of the esoteric, more intellectual question that that is, is whether or not, you know, is the, is the, is our, are our brains built to serve the adult that they will become or- right. It is the brain that we give me the damn marshmallow now. (laughs) Exactly. What's what's going on there? So that's the question. And this is a shared question, right? So she she is legitimately curious. Her work started Mm. with this question of like, why is this so hard? Um, Another speaker that I'm working with, uh, you know, again, a similar just lay question, which is like, what makes people say yes to a request? Right. Like um, uh, that's Vanessa Bones. Um, And. These are questions that are shared. Now, in the way of these questions are are another problem that has to be solved. And so when you're talking about, you know, whether it's a researcher, whether it's you and your own idea, there really is this phase that your brain went through that says, you know, everybody looks at it this way, but what if I looked at it this way? Mm. And so, you know, in the case of Becca's work with the brain mapping, she said, well, most people ask about, you know, think about these questions about the brain development and why is it so hard from an evolutionary perspective? And that's not wrong. I mean, our brains developed in certain ways for certain reasons. She Mm -hmm. said, but we focus on that more than on. So that's the current perspective. And that's the one that validates the audience's current perspective. Right, right. But the perspective that she's in, so that she's uh, introducing is one of, of experience. Uh. Uh, how are our brains shaped by not only the experiences that we have, but the experiences that we must have in order to become the humans that we're becoming. And so you see, just by doing that, she validates how most people look at it, but she's offering this other thing, which most people uh-huh. would agree is also true, right? Yeah. Most of us would say, of course, our brains and our, and who we are as adults are mm. shaped by our experiences. But that's usually not what we're thinking about when we're thinking about the mechanics of how our brains work. So right, right. that's how she's starting to introduce that that second perspective, but still be true to yeah. her own research, her own perspective. Um, and you see, she we're, we're using the audience's language to get to her work, but we're not losing her work. We're really yeah. just opening doors to her work that are attractive doors to the audience. You know, it's it's reminding me of my my really my first job, which was in the world of innovation and creativity, and I spent a lot of time doing market research. Yeah, and I learned a way of writing concepts to test them out. You know, is there an idea here? And you always start a, you know, isn't it annoying that this happens? But wouldn't it be great if something like this could happen instead? Right. Blah blah. It's the new way you get this to happen, not that to happen. Yes. And then you kind of go to people, I don't know, are you interested in that? They're like, no, because the problem statement didn't really connect or right. the solution statement didn't really connect. Something and you're kind of connect. working yeah. both of those to try and figure out a way to go, oh, here might be some some crappy product that I might be able to sell you. Which is why I left that career. But, you know, it's yeah. another story. <laughs> 
Yeah, this is why same friend, same. Yeah, yeah. No, notice that I'm not still in marketing or in advertising. I I, yes. I love the big ideas, and that was a <laughs> conscious choice to to go to things bigger than widgets. So, speaking of big ideas, tell us about the book that you've chosen to read for us. So, the book that I've chosen to read for uh, that I've chosen to read is uh, "Mistakes Were Made, But Not by Me." Um, <laughs> don't you don't you wish you came up with that cover title? Oh that is such a good title. <laughs> such a good title. Um, and I came to this book uh, as a, it was a recommendation from yeah. uh, a psychologist, not when I was seeing, but actually a psychologist that I was referred to because I was exploring an idea that I wanted to cover in one of my keynotes. I wanted to mm -hmm. check my thinking on something. Right. Um, and and it, was a, it was an idea behind the, the keynote that eventually became the one that I call Getting the Green Light um, because it was about this idea uh, that that pain is the enemy of long-term change. Right. And uh, I wanted to make sure that I was accurately representing some basic concepts, frankly, of cognitive behavioral therapy, but in a business context. Right. Um, and so I talked with this woman and she was, and she was like, well, and I knew this, she's like, essentially what you're talking about is creating cognitive dissonance in people. And I'm like, well, I know that, but I can't exactly say that from a keynote <laughs> stage because people are like, rr, rr. I mean, I, I get there, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> you can't lead yeah. with that because people are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> exactly. Um, and, but she said, if you really, really want to understand this really, really well, you should read this book, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, um, because it was written, I mean, I had read, so Leon Festinger is the psychologist that initially came yes. up with cognitive dissonance theory, and, and he's got this amazing, you know, and just for people not familiar with his work, it really started with his study of... Um, of doomsday cults and why is it that when a doomsday cult would predict the end of the world and then the right. end of the world didn't happen, what happened to those people? Like what, right. what happened? Uh, half of them double down on it going, see, this proves it even more. <laughs> I know. Like, How does that work? <laughs> exactly. And I'm sure none of us see any familiarities <laughs> or through lines to what's happened exactly. recently at all. Exactly. Um, but she was suggesting that this book was a great, Kind of layperson's read of cognitive dissonance theory, yes. um, and it was written by one of Festinger's proteges, so it was very tight to Festinger. So this wasn't like this wasn't you know somebody interpreting somebody else's interpretation. This was somebody right. who studied under Festinger and was saying, okay, here's what we've done with cognitive dissonance theory since. There's a kind of spiritual lineage to, from the yeah. original work. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I just I am so fascinated by cognitive dissonance uh, because the seeking of cognitive consonance, in other words, making you know making sure that there's you know, congruency and alignment mm. between how, who you see, see yourself to be, how you act, what you say, what you do, that drive is one of the most powerful drives right. that we are as humans, and it's it is it is running afoul of that drive that in mm. my experience is what gets in the way of creating change. Um, and so I just really wanted to understand it more. So I read this book and this book was just, it, it was such <laughs> a deep, just wonderful explanation and exploration of this, just the, the, the deep cognitive biases that come in with dissonance yeah. that it was, yeah, it's just, it has become one of my favorites and one of my favorites to recommend to other people. That's fantastic. Well, Tamsin, why don't you uh, pick your two pages and read from mistakes were made, but not by me. <laughs> The brain is designed with blind spots, 
optical and psychological. And one of its cleverest tricks is to confer on its owner the comforting delusion that he or she does not have any. In a sense, dissonance theory is a theory of blind spots, of how and why people unintentionally blind themselves so that they fail to notice vital events and information that might make them question their behavior or their convictions. Along with the confirmation bias, the brain comes packaged with other self-serving habits that allow us to justify our own perceptions as belief, uh, and beliefs as being accurate, realistic, and unbiased. Social psychologist Lee Ross calls this phenomenon naive realism, the inescapable conviction that we perceive objects and events clearly, quote unquote, as they really are. We assume that other reasonable people see things the same way we do. If they disagree with us, well, they obviously aren't seeing things clearly. Naive realism creates a logical labyrinth because it presupposes two things. One, people who are open-minded and fair ought to agree with reasonable opinion. And two, any opinion I hold must be reasonable. If it weren't, I wouldn't hold it. Therefore, if I can just get my opponents to sit down here and listen to me explain how things really are, they will agree with me. And if they don't, it must be because they are biased. Ross knows whereof he speaks, both from his laboratory experiments and from his efforts to reduce the bitter conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. Even when each side recognizes that the other side perceives the issues differently, each thinks that the other side is biased while they themselves are objective and that their own perceptions of reality should provide the basis for settlement. In one experiment, Ross took peace proposals created by Israeli negotiators, labeled them as Palestinian proposals, and asked Israeli citizens to judge them. The Israelis liked the Palestinian proposal attributed to Israel more than they liked the Israeli proposal attributed to the Palestinians, he says. If your own proposal isn't going to be attractive to you when it comes from the other side, what chance is there that the other side's proposal is going to be attractive when it actually comes from the other side? That's great. And uh, uh, as blunt a laying out of you're not nearly as smart or as rational <laughs> or as no. kind or as gentle <laughs> as you think you are. Um, Never. What what struck a chord for you in this, Tazan? Why did you pick this this uh, passage in particular? This passage in particular, because I thought it was such a great explanation of the blindness that we have to our own bias. And right. um, I particularly like this was the first time I'd ever come across that that phrase naive realism, mm. um, and it explains a lot, right? I mean, we just we think that we see the world clearly because the world makes clear sense to us, thanks to all those stories that we've constructed about it in our head. Uh, but we completely forget that other people have that same perspective from their own mm -hmm. worldview. Um, and I just, I thought that combination of, of concept, which just is a, just a, a beautiful, I think, you know, potentially unfamiliar concept to some folks yeah. combined with such a dramatic example from the Israeli-Palestinian right. conflict um, and how you just put a different label on it and people are like, oh, well, that's clearly not better. 
Yeah. When actually they preferred their quote unquote opponent's version simply because right. it was called like, because it was labeled as if it was from their own. It just says to me, just as you said immediately after the reading. <laughs> we're nuts. It's just a great, it's a great reminder that a humility is a, is a trait to be, fostered and nurtured within ourselves, uh, as is the ability to extend grace to other people. Uh, Because as I like to say it, you know, everybody wants to be perceived as smart, capable, and good. Right. And if we could just remember that more than anything else, then I think all of us would be, you know, to forget influence and getting big ideas out there. I think each of us would be more successful as humans Right. If we were just to remember that, that everything that we do and everything that other people do, by and large, is just simply driven by that need to be seen as smart, capable, and good. I'm wondering what delusions you've managed to let go of now that you're becoming aware of this and what delusions you're holding on to. <laughs> um, all right. Delusions to let go of. I think the, the the biggest one for me is the delusion of memory and the delusion of the accuracy of memory. Um, oh, that yeah. was a different book, actually, frankly. Yeah. Um, uh, I think Invisible Gorilla was the, the the name of the book that really made right. me go, oh, my Stum- gosh. Stumbling into happiness is a bit like that Oh, as that's well. a good one, too. And, yeah, and absolutely. Gilbert's book where I'm just like, oh, oh, I remember nothing accurately. Yeah. <sighs> no. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely been one of those. And I think the other one, which has been very important, is the delusion that I am not bi- that I that I am free of bias. Right. Um, there is another research study that I found fascinating once upon a time that it's the people who think that they are not biased that in fact have the most biased of actions. It's the people right. who are completely, you know, at least aware of the fact that they're prejudiced, that they're they're bigoted or misogynistic or racist or whatever, yeah. that actually account for that in their Mm -hmm. behaviors. Um, It doesn't, you know, sometimes it's justification of bad behaviors, but in a situation where they are, uh, where they know they have to give a quote unquote unbiased review of something, um, it's the people who acknowledge their bias that are actually able to give a more unbiased review because they take into account, they've acknowledged that. And I, I won't let myself get away with the just, okay, well, you're going to be biased, Tamsin, so just you know live with it. Um, I do try to eradicate them when I find them. Right. Uh, but it is, I think, a really important, you know, I see it oftentimes actually in, in conversations with my kids because I have, you know, one of my older son is, uh, and I love this about him, he is very focused on fairness right. and justice and what's equal. And he is at the you know tender age of thirteen, very convinced that he is right, and how he's remembered something is yeah, correct. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I find that this comes into play even in my interactions with him. I, you know, because he, he'll be like, "Do you remember that this is what happened?" And I'll think to myself, "That is not what I remember <laughs> or how." I, and I'll say that I was like, "I don't uh-huh. remember it that way." I said, "But." You know, and I'll say to him, "I'm like, but memory is fallible." You know, I think it's it's like if you remember it that way, I think that. Mm-hmm. That's probably it. May, it's probably true, <laughs> yeah. um, and I think that's those are the those are the kind of the delusions that I have tried to get a you know tried to tried to let go as a part right. of this, and it's just made me aware of the delusions, all the delusions I still have. <laughs> I know we're 
we're all finding our way out of the maze of ourselves and our, as best we can. Yes, yes. I have a lot of therapists <laughs> too. <laughs> I'm um, a business therapist, a financial I'm, therapist. There we go. Yeah, lots of therapists. Um, your book is called Find Your Red Thread. Um, yes. When did you come across the metaphor of the red thread and why is it so powerful for you? I first came across that metaphor uh, when I was in Sweden, outside mm. of Stockholm, actually, and in the offices of Ericsson. Uh, uh, they were a client. I was working for a different company at the time. We did a boutique kind of presentation skills and message development training, uh, and we were working with them on something. And one of the clients said, so the big it was basically said so the so the red thread of this is and then kind of mm. supplied whatever, and at the time I was like oh what a beautifully visceral phrase right and I understood contextually what it meant but I kind of presumed it was an internal to Ericsson thing like maybe right, it was just right. like one of those company things that you know yeah, somebody said something and they're like oh we talk about the red thread here at Ericsson until. Several years later, I was working with a different client uh, here in the States, and they had a Swedish team member. Again, this is a different client. So this is like State Street <laughs> right. Bank. This wasn't Ericsson. And she was like, all right, I'm missing the red thread here. And I'm like, oh, <gasps> is it a Swedish team? thing? Like, is it a Swedish <laughs> thing? Like, what is this? Um, and she was like, oh, don't, don't, you, don't you use that phrase in, in English. And I was like, not here in the US, I said, yeah. I mean, I understand, you know, it's like, do I have it correct what you mean by this? And she said, yes. And I was like, do, where does it come from? Like, because now it's clearly like, is it Swedish? And she's mm. like, I don't know. Um, so that set me on to an exploration because I just, I, I had that in my head and I had recently finished uh, Chris Anderson's, you know, official guide to TED Talks book or whatever the title right. of it is, where he talks about how every great TED Talk has a through line, mm. proceeds to give you examples of them, and then does not tell you how to create one, uh -huh. <laughs> which I found infinitely frustrating because at the time, um, and I still do. Or actually. a market opportunity. Yeah, yeah but, exactly. Yeah. Or a market. <laughs> Ding. Exactly. That was the first, that was where the book was born, I have to yeah. tell you. Um because, uh, you know, I, at the time, was the executive producer of TEDx Cambridge. Um, and, you know, yeah. I'm still the idea strategist for them. And I was like, okay, here's this through line. It's really important. The Swedish have this awesome name for it. Yeah. What, tell me more. And, yeah, and then I, then I you know, dove in and discovered its origins and Greek myth. And that was, that was a fabulous discovery. Right. The, the Minotaur myth is so powerful. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you say in the book is that ideas need to be built. And that, that really struck me. I, I was like, but don't ideas just happen? I mean, they just basically show up in your head and sure, you might polish them a little bit. But the idea yeah. of, of a building blocks to shape and create an idea felt like a lot of work <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and, and less kind of spontaneously genius. I'll just wait for the idea to show up. Yes. What what are the building blocks? Yeah, the well the bidding, building blocks are the 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 building blocks of story. So right. it's kind of like you quoted you made you had a great quote earlier where something like inspiration was when oh, Yeah, it's when your past suddenly makes sense. Yeah. Correct. In other words, where all the pieces of the story fall into place. So right. in my mind, you know, when I started really diving into this and and trying to figure out, 
again, I was trying to figure out how do I take this expert language at the time is this expert language of these scholars and academics that I was working with, with TEDx Cambridge, and how do we translate that into mm -hmm. lay language, admittedly intellectual, highly educated lay language of a TEDx audience, but it was still a translation. And I was trying to figure out what is, what is a language that everyone speaks um, and everybody's brain speaks story. And again, not just once upon a time stories, but the reason why once upon a time stories are so effective is because they contain the building blocks of these make sense of the world stories. Right. So what's happening is that inspiration striking still happens. Those eureka moments are real. They absolutely happen. Um, but what I have come to believe is that the moment that happens is the moment that that last piece of that that building block of story kind of clicks into place so that all of a sudden that connective tissue between question and right. answer, between issue and idea, between, between problem and solution just suddenly makes sense. So it's good news for the, the creative folks who just want that piece to, you know, that yeah. magic yeah. to strike because it means that it, A, it will, <laughs> it will, <laughs> uh, but B, it means that you can go back and find the building blocks that created it so that you can actually explain it to somebody else. You can yeah. explain to somebody else why that bolt mm. of inspiration is the right one. Because in that moment, you were like, this is the right idea and I'm completely convinced of it. And most people have had the experience that you can't just say that to other people and have them be convinced of it too. Um, right. So being able to go back and understand that every idea has that story behind it means yeah. that if you do have that flash of inspiration, you can go back and put, you know, as, what's the phrase? Uh, you've built your classes in the air and now put the foundations under them. Right, That's right. essentially what you can do. But it also works from the other side. If you're like, if you don't have an idea and you're trying to find one, you can really start at the beginning of the story and see where the story takes you. Tell me, tell me more about that. Because I, I, I am an ideas person. Like I have yes. ideas bubbling through my head on a regular basis and, you know, at least 98.5% of them are rubbish and the other one and a half aren't that good either, but there's some, some, sub sub subset that is an okay idea every now and then. Yeah. But having ideas is not the problem for me. I've got lots of ideas. Um, and I know in conversation with other people, they're like, I have no ideas. And false. I, well, I think that's, <laughs> I, I agree that's false, but yeah. how do you help people move into the darkness and start feeling their way towards and, and feeling the shape of the ideas that are there, but maybe not yet fully recognized. You, you take them along the stepping stones of, of the, of the structure of the, right. of the story that, that leads to an idea. You just take them up the steps, you lead them up the steps. Eventually you'll get <laughs> to the top. Um, and that starts with a, a question that they want to answer for themselves. So back to what we were talking about before, like what, right. what's, what's, you know, and you were saying like, you're probably like, it starts with so, like something that's annoying or why don't yeah. we have, or what's a better way or why can't we, or how could I, or why, you know, when will I, all of those things. Um, every idea starts with an inquiry like that. It, it just does like whether it's conscious or not, there is a that's moment where you're like, why not? How can, when will, who will, how will, it, it just starts, it starts there. Those. So, yeah. I, I love those. I mean, I just love, I, I'm, actually, can you repeat those five or six little oh question gosh. stubs that you threw out? Because they're, they're fantastic. It's just like, I've got this image of you seeding a field with these kind of 
different types of curiosity yeah. questions. Sure. I don't know that I can repeat them. I just, those are on the moment, but there are things <laughs> like, um, why not? How can, where will, when will, who will, how will, mm -hmm. why not? Why is it so hard to, um, yeah. why Lovely. is it easy for me to, um, uh, that's good. uh, how, you know, those, all of those, everything starts with that kind of yeah, yeah. inquiry, whether again, whether conscious or not. So, really the whole process that I, that I walk people through is, is a process I believe of making the unconscious conscious and make, making the overt, right. you know, the, the covert overt and, and discreet. Mm. Um, because it really, when you're trying to find an idea and I do have folks who come to, to me with this either because they've established, you know, they're already established around an idea and they're like, I need my next big thing. Or, um, you know, they just, they feel that pull of having a thing that they can hang their hat on. They have the, yeah. they feel the pull as any human would, I think of being able to really crisply define the, the, the distinction and the differentiation of their own worldview. Um, it, it helps to just back at the beginning. Yeah. What questions do you love to answer? Um, and that frankly is a question like that realization came to me from reading a fantastic book a collection of essays by Alain de Botton, which I'm sure I uh, massacred, yes. <laughs> um, uh, called The Art of Travel. Right. And there's this wonderful essay in that book where I just, it's it, it was so resonant for me. He was basically complaining about tourist guides, like, you know, tour books, visitor books, yeah. you know, the ones yeah, that yeah. are like, yeah, go yeah. see Lon X, y, Lonely Planet or something. Yeah, so exactly. You and every other Lonely Planet person shows up the same, same damn temple. <laughs> exactly. Like exactly. <laughs> and, um, he was basically, it was basically a, a beautifully elegant rant against that because, mm. um, or ra rather just having, it was a rant about making sure that you're clear on the fact that whoever wrote those books was writing them from a point of view of a question they were intrigued to answer. And so right. I took the, the thrust and the, the, the call uh, to action of the essay to be what question, like when you travel, what question do you seek mm. to answer? Um, and I know for me personally, that helped put into pr perspective, like why I just love to walk around a city. I just love to walk. I love to wit. I like to window shop. I love to just see right. what's in the stores. Some of that might be because my mother was an anthropologist and it just like got through me. Like, well, what, what's the, what's the question you you seek to answer when you travel? Uh, what what gives this place its unique pull and power? Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is actually a consistent question for me around everything. So it's, right. it was really, you know, that was this kind of, you know, tumblers of a lock, like really reading that essay and answering mm. that question for myself. And I was like, well, wait a minute, that's kind of what I do with everything. Like if I, yeah. you know, if I were to, you know, come back as an animal, I'm pretty, or if I was one <laughs> before, I'm pretty sure it was a magpie. Um, right. Because I'm just endlessly fascinated by beautiful, shiny things and ideas and, just picking things up from wherever to see what I can build from them. And that kind of, again, that, that was part of what was woven into mm. the thinking behind the book and my approach was, was what if other people are like this? What if other people have questions that they are repeatedly drawn to answer? Right. Uh, and I, and I found that people are, you know, they may not have it crisp right on the top of their head, but if, but if you, you ask them enough times, like why, you know, what are you curious about? What are you solving? It doesn't take much. Cause now I've seen it over and over again with my clients over a yeah. number of years now, 
where you start to put those answers that they give you next to each other. And you Mm -hmm. can say, do you see, do you see how this is all the same question? And sometimes they're like, oh my gosh. And it's just (laughs) a beautiful moment. I mean, do you think we have, you know, an essential question that drives us, that creates the kind of through line to our life? Well, that is that is the perpetual fox versus hedgehog, isn't it? Um, I am a, a self-avowed hedgehog. So for me personally, absolutely, there is right. a question that I think I see the whole, uh, that I see my, I see the world through. And that is, how do you close the gap between aspiration, you know, what's the aspiration and actual between, mm. between potential and reality? Um, I'm really fascinated by that. Um, and so it's part of why I've spent so much time between you know, between the worlds of passionate people, because scientists, where I've spent a lot of time, academics, where I've spent a lot of time, artists, where I spent a huge amount of time as well. Right. These are people who are, exist on the edge of potential consciously, yeah. and the the most of the world just doesn't get it. <laughs> like they don't <laughs> right. they don't get why they do that. They don't get the power of their things. Um, so I see that my my world is definitely driven by that single question yeah. and all of the different clothes that it wears to different situations. Um, but I fully understand that not everybody is that way. That 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 they, you know the right. Isaiah Berlin foxes are out there where there are multiple frameworks and multiple schema through which people so I through through which people look at the world. So yeah. I know that there are people who you know are interested either in a group of questions or in kind of a, or in just kind of, or in the process of questioning even. Um, And, and those, those folks are just as fun for me to talk to and work with because it is a, it is a, it is a worldview and a perspective that's so different from my own. Yes. Tamsin, it's been a wonderful conversation. Um, What needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between us? Well, I think it's a, it's building a little bit more on when you and I, you know, when you said that you know, some people feel like they don't have any ideas and I said false yeah. and you're like, I agree. <laughs> um, I, I want to take that one step further. And that is that I, I believe that everybody in fact does have at least one very right. big idea in them. I don't, my experience shows that not everybody's willing to do the work to Mm. bring out or to serve that idea, which is fine. Like everybody can do what they want. Um, That's one of the delusions that I have tried to (laughs) let go. Um, But I do believe that because if this work has taught me anything is that even though this structure of story that we use to explain the world to ourselves is universal. And I Mm. believe that it is. And if I ever, decide to go back and actually get the doctorate, I tell myself that I want, um, that's what I want to prove out that, that it is in fact universal. Um, how we fill in those blanks is this kind of beautiful, um, motley mad lib, right. Of, (laughs) of life and of perspective. And that, that how each of us fills in those blanks, what question we answer, what those what those contrasting lenses of perspective are, what the core assumptions, values, and beliefs are, what sets of skills and approaches that we have developed either through intuition or experience or education, um, that combination 
is if it's not actually unique, it's mathematically close enough. Um, so that if you can find that and you can find your own truly, you know, know, close enough to unique way to articulate how you see the world and that operating system that drives you, um, you have enormous power, uh, both for yourself and for the world that we live in. So one of the bridges my wife and I have had to build over our years together is on the pronunciation of macrame or macrame, depending on what continent you're from. I say macrame, she says macrame. And I have no idea why we were talking about macrame or macrame. But here's the point. When I hear Tamsin's final words, macrame slash macrame is what comes to mind. Weaving together who you are, your history, your strengths, your vulnerabilities, your opportunities, your source code, with that one idea that's bubbling up. I mean, does that idea stem from frustration? You know, this matters, and the way it's done, it currently sucks. It needs to be better. Or perhaps it stems from a vision. This is what's missing, and this is what needs to be known by others. Honestly, it doesn't really matter what the source is, only that you consider it and consider bringing it and sharing it and communicating it with the rest of the world. You can find out about Tamsin and her book and her work at her website, tamsinwebster.com. Her socials are all her unique name as well, Tamsin, T-A-M-S-E-N, Webster, W-E-B-S-T-E-R. So whatever your social is and you want to follow her on that, that's where you'll find her. Thank you for listening. I always appreciate it. Um, The three things that you can choose to do now, go check out the Duke Humphreys membership site, totally free, but you'll find some bonuses, transcripts, downloads, other episodes. Give the podcast a review. Honestly, it's, it's annoying that this is true. It's annoying that I have to ask at the end of every episode, but you know, people look at reviews as a way of going, this is worth listening to. So it makes this podcast easier to find for others. And thirdly, honestly, the best way this grows is by word of mouth. So if this conversation about communication and finding your big idea with Tamsin struck a chord for you, I'd ask you to go, who else might this ring a chord for um, in your life? And if you're willing to pass on a recommendation, I'd be grateful. You're awesome and you're doing great.